0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're looking at verses 13 through 16. It is a commentary on the verses that have preceded it. It also, um, as, as kind of a timeout, uh, we're going to be resuming the story of Abraham here shortly. We get to uh, verse 17. Again, it's by faith Abraham. He's the first to get an encore. We, uh, we've already seen by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham. Um, in verse 11, it was by faith Sarah, although the manuscripts aren't so clear. And it might, that might also be a by faith Abraham verse together with Baron Sarah, received ability to conceive. In any event, we've talked about Abraham and Sarah. We're talking about their faith, the faith for the birth of Isaac. And at that point then is a break in the development of Hebrews 11 because he gives a description in verses 13 through 16, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises. And so there's commentary, there's doctrinal development in these verses that the author of Hebrews doesn't want the reader to miss before he moves on to the next example of faith. And so this parenthesis, this time out, if you will, will only last for those verses. And then we'll be back again, you'll notice, verse 17, by faith Abraham, uh, verse 20, by faith Isaac, verse 21, by faith Jacob, verse 22, by faith Mo- uh, Joseph, and so we're going to be back to that that survey of uh, faithful believers shortly. But for today, we've got to center on this, uh, this side trip. We have to center on this uh, development here in 13 through 16. So before we do that, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's call upon our Father to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless our time of study today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth, rejoicing in the blessing that it is to study to show ourselves approved. You command us to be here, and here we are. And Father, it is, it is good to be here. We get fed, we get blessed, we get built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. Father, it's, uh, <laughs> it's almost unthinkable that uh, this would be a command that we, would, that we would disobey or that we would get tired of your truth. We know what happens. We, In fact, we have brothers and sisters where it has happened. And so we simply pray that if, uh, if our appetite is not what it used to be, then, Father, restore it. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, for truth. Stoke our appetite greater than we've ever had before, that we might hunger and thirst after righteousness and be satisfied. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so um, we've had the by faith, by faith, by faith and realizing that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's how the chapter started. So if, in fact, they don't see things, that's not a problem. When we get to verse 13, we find out that all of these died in faith without receiving the promises That's not a problem. That doesn't mean God's a liar. That doesn't mean that the promises failed or that God couldn't make good. It just means that they died too soon and the promises aren't coming yet. But they will be coming and Abraham will be resurrected to enjoy every blessing God ever promised him. Isaac will be resurrected. Jacob will be resurrected. Every generation of Israel will stand upon this earth in resurrected glory as uh, God has provided for them. Of course, unbelievers get resurrected to to go to the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire after that. We understand that. But verse 13 says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, having seen them with their spiritual eyes, having seen them from afar, it says, having welcomed them from a distance. You ever welcome somebody from a distance and hope they keep their distance? (laughs) welcome them from a distance all right which means that they saw they saw how far it was and they welcomed it they didn't grumble about well how come we can't have it now how come we can't enter into the kingdom now where's the kingdom now they saw and they welcomed from a distance content to know that god in his perfect timing will bring it at uh, at the right unfolding at the right event see david likewise wanted to build a temple. And God said, no, you can't build a temple. Your son's going to build a temple after you're dead. And what did, Satan, and what did uh, David do? He praised God. He rejoiced. He fell on his face and he, he started uh, preparing things so that after he was gone, Solomon would have everything just laid out, ready to go. He funded the entire progress, uh, the entire project. And so this is the attitude that the Old Testament saints had, is looking forward to a coming kingdom and never actually entering the kingdom the one generation that was on earth when the kingdom was at hand, they were uh, not welcoming the kingdom. They crucified the king. And in fact, that's what has now led to the kingdom being delayed by an additional 2,000 years beyond the, the time that it was originally promised. So all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is our application as well. We recognize that in our stewardship, we, of course, were strangers and aliens because while they at least were looking forward to future earthly blessings, we actually are looking to heavenly blessings. Always have been, always will be. Our citizenship is always in heaven, always will be. And so clearly we function on this earth as aliens and strangers even more so than Israel functioned as aliens and strangers in, uh, in their capacity. For those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. If you've ever been to a place, you realize you don't belong. You know, you travel to a foreign country and you get there and you find out it's full of foreigners, right? (laughs) And then you realize, wait a minute, I'm the foreigner, okay? Because this is their country. And you're looking around and, you know, like I've been to Ukraine nine different times. and, And every time I go to Ukraine, it's full of Ukrainians. And and they speak Ukrainian or they speak Russian and they have Ukrainian currency and they have Ukrainian food and, and there's not a Pluckers to be found, <laughs> not a Starbucks to be found. So you go to a place and you realize, I don't belong here. I'm here for a time, but when my work here is done, I'm a citizen of another land. I'm, su- I'm, a, I'm subject to another jurisdiction. I'm subject to another law. And uh, so in all these things as we <coughs> realize we have patterns for our application today. <clears throat> all right. And a couple of things we want to look at here this morning. Not verse 1. There we go. Verses 13 through 16. We, uh, we're kind of shocked when we read Some of these details. They died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. And we have to ask ourselves, what did they see and what did they welcome? And we have glimpses here of things that we don't know about in Genesis. And so in verse 13, we're looking at this thinking, what all did they see? And then in in verse 16, we find out They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. And and I stop right there and I say, wait a minute, a city? It was even mentioned earlier than that too, when they were dwelling in tents and uh, they were looking for a city. Well, what's this city about? Did you spot that in verse 10? He was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. So I have these glimpses, a little glimpse in verse 10, a glimpse in verse 13, a glimpse in verse 16. And as I read through the book of Hebrews, it hits me, it should hit all of us, that the Old Testament prophets knew a lot more than we give them credit for. That they had a doctrinal capacity beyond what we know about as recorded in Genesis. As recorded in the scriptures. So if you go back and you can read, and we read most of it a couple weeks ago, we read much of Genesis from chapter 12 with the call of Abraham to chapter 25 when he dies. And we read a lot of that. Was there anywhere in there that we saw a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God? Did we see a land become a heavenly land? None of that was mentioned in the Genesis record. And so we're left to conclude that God's not lying here in Hebrews 11. They were looking for that city. It's just Moses didn't write about it. It's possible Moses didn't even know it. So Moses didn't write about But Abraham was looking for it. And the author of Hebrews is, is cluing us into this. Now, as of this moment, Maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor Bob, you're making an assumption. No, I think, well, maybe. But it's an assumption that's grounded in what the text says. The text says Abraham was looking for a city. So I believe it. And if Genesis didn't mention it, that doesn't keep me from believing it. Because Hebrews mentions it. It's in the Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired it. And this is not the only place where that happens. And so, so through these subpoints, then I want to show you some other examples. And so uh, there's more that Abraham knew that Genesis doesn't tell us. And Jesus clues us into this. So join me in John chapter 8, and I'll start to show you some things here. John chapter 8. Jesus testifies to some doctrine that Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, is what we're told. Abraham rejoiced to see my day in John eight fifty six. You know, we're going through, uh, this is called inductive Bible study. That means we're, we're surveying all of scriptures. We're, we're drawing data from everywhere so that we can put the sum total of everything together in a, in a systematic way so we can understand the totality of it because the totality of it is not limited to Genesis. We have the testimony of Jesus in in the Gospel of John. We have the testimony, uh, other testimony coming up. Of course, culminating here with Hebrews 11. And you'll see what I'm saying. So, um, this is in a very confrontational chapter where he's going back and forth with these religious leaders. And every time you'll notice uh, stretches of red letters and then a black letter uh, verse. Stretches of red letters and a black letter verse. And... These black letter sections here are angry Jews, (laughs) mad at Jesus. And each time it gets worse. Like in verse 39, they say, Abraham is our father. And in verse 41, they say, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God, which kind of contradicts the previous statement they made, but don't confuse them with anything. They're mad. They're arguing with Jesus. And then in verse 48, Did we not say rightly, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? In verse 52, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So we see all of this blatant hostility and it gets worse the further we make it through the chapter. And you know what I love most of all? Jesus never backs down. (laughs) He just stands there and gives them the next barrel. All right, and um, you are not greater. Verse fifty three: You are not greater than our father Abraham who died. And here is Jesus' answer in verse fifty four: If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, and you have not come to know him. You say he's your God, but you don't know him but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. See, He's already told them that they're of their father the devil. That's back in verse 44. So we've passed that, that point of no return already. They're not saved. And they're hostile to everything the Father has. Now, it says in verse 56, "...your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day." He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now, if you ever encounter this, sometimes (laughs) you get involved in a human argument with somebody, and it's pretty clear that they're not listening to anything you have to say. They're just waiting for you to stop so they can start yelling at you again. All right. They are not interacting with anything he's telling them here. But we are. We're going to glean something out of this. Because the statement he makes here is powerful. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Let's let's ask ourselves, what all is involved in that? Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ, saw Christ? He saw my day? Does this mean he saw First Advent and second Advent, both? What, what, what do we think he saw? Did he see the manger? Did he see the virgin birth? Did he see the cross? Did he see the battle of Armageddon? Did he see the, the, the kingdom? And understand, we, don't, we, can't, we can't say definitely because we're limited to just this verse by itself. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That's all, he, that's all we're told. But that phrase, my day, is loaded. Because what is the day of the Lord? What is the day? As you see the day drawing near. What is the day? And specifically, my day is what he says. The day of Christ. The day of the Lord. The day of Christ Jesus. And, and from Abraham's perspective, he would not have had, we don't think, he would have had the specificity that we have, Every indication is when the prophets were speaking about the coming Messiah, they spoke about the coming Messiah as one coming. But they were puzzled because it seemed like there was a Messiah that was reigning and conquering and glorious. And then it seemed like there was a Messiah that was crucified and suffering and humble. And that bugged them. They puzzled over that. They said, we've got we're trying to rightly divide the word of truth. And we love these reigning, conquering, glorious passages because those preach, right? <laughs> Break the bonds of Rome, give an eternal kingdom, rule this world. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Uh, the crops are going to bear a hundredfold, you know. Yeah, who, who wouldn't want to preach that? Those are popular in the synagogues. But then my servant uh, in, in being pierced and crucified and dying the stone which the builders rejected, all these sad prophecies, and they're messianic. They can't deny that they're messianic. Well, they do now. But back then, they accepted them as all being messianic. And so they puzzled. And they puzzled, they puzzled, they puzzled. And they came up with two answers. The rabbis, they debated this, and they they finally decided, well, either there's two messiahs, or there's one messiah who comes twice. And they said we can't figure it out. That's that's it's got to be one of those. Either there's two messiahs and one of them's got a kind of a bum deal, okay? And this is how they named him. So they have Messiah ben Joseph. And Messiah ben Joseph was the name they assigned to be the one that fulfilled all of the suffering messiah passages. Because Joseph was the character in the Old Testament that was rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, shipped off to Egypt. He was beaten, he was abused. And so when the the rabbis were trying to figure out how these prophecies would be fulfilled, and they they had this collection of suffering servant Messiah prophecies, they just said, okay, that's Messiah ben-Joseph. Messiah, son of Joseph, Ben Joseph, okay? But then when we, have, when we have passages of glory and kingdom and reigning and conquering and all the good stuff, they said, that's Messiah Ben David, the son of David, because it's the son of David who will be sitting on the throne. It's the son of David. And so they came up with this solution and not everyone agreed. In fact, those that preached it didn't like all of it, but they, they said, it's the best we can come up with that there's going to be two messiahs. And that uh, I think they even broke it down to the point where they knew that God himself was going to be one of them. I don't think they they liked God being the suffering one, but they did like God being the king, being the ruling one. So that's how they solved it. Now, there was a group also that came along and said, well, no, there's only one messiah. Because if he's a a one-of-a-kind, you can't have two of them. There's a a one-of-a-kind son, the son of God, the messiah, but he's going to come two times. He's going to come twice. And it and turns out now with hindsight, we can tell them that they were right. They just didn't know how right they were. And the other group was wrong, but they didn't know how wrong they were. But this is how they were trying to sort it out. And so, by the way, this whole story I'm telling you is in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to see it. Hebrews, James. 1 Peter 1 and verse 10. If you want to take a look at it yourself, jot yourself a note. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They weren't dummies. They weren't sloppy. They made careful searches, searching the scriptures to see if these things were so. Also inquiries. A prophet could inquire of the Lord. A prophet could call upon the Lord for their questions to be answered. And they would get an answer back. Thus saith the Lord. The prophets who prophesied of old... uh, of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Notice that? The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they recognized that there there were two things at work, sufferings and glory. And so they were trying to solve it And they were trying to determine, is it a person solution or is it a time solution? What person? Is it two different Christs? Two different Messiahs? Or what time? Is it two different times? Is it the same Christ in two different times? Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. It was revealed to them. Now, I dare you to go back and find that in the Old Testament. The closest you can come is Daniel chapter 12, and even that's not explicit. When was it revealed? These prophets, as they're wrestling over it, they're wrestling, I want an answer. Is it two Christ or two times? And every time they got to that point, the Spirit of God would tell them, you're not going to get that answer. But a people coming after you will have that answer. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you, that is church-age saints. You and me. Austin Bible Church, sitting in this room. We are the stewardship of the mystery. We are the church. We have a New Testament they never had access to. We have all the answers they wanted. These things which have now been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, God is so smart about how he holds things in reserve and how he keeps things in a mystery state until it's time to unveil them to the proper recipients. Israel was not the proper recipient for this aspect of the coming of the Christ. One Christ coming twice. So as far as all the Old Testament prophets are concerned, when they spoke about the coming of the Lord... It was the coming of the Lord as, as an event, as a thing. And Abraham saw it. And Abraham rejoiced to see my day, is what Jesus said. So I believe he had a, he had a comprehensive view of mainly second advent. However much a first advent? Don't know. <clears throat> so this is something that we have testified here. It's not found in Genesis. Are we still making assumptions? No, we're not making assumptions. We're accepting what Jesus says at face value. Abraham rejoiced to see his day. I'm good with that. We're accepting what Hebrews says at face value. That the, uh, they looked forward looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. I'm not bothered by the fact that Genesis doesn't mention it. Because God in His wisdom withholds these things until they're ready to be revealed. You know what else Genesis never told us about? The post-mortem ministry of Abraham. When we read about Abraham, he dies. He gets buried in the cave that he bought for Sarah. And it becomes the cave of the patriarchs. It's still there today. You can go visit it today. The Muslims cause trouble most, a lot of the time. But you can go there. And uh, he's buried there. His bones are still there. Isaac's there. Jacob's there. At least their bones are. Where are they? Well, well, originally, before the cross, they descended to Sheol because everybody goes to Sheol. But God, in His grace, put a bottomless pit, a chasm in Sheol. I'm headed for Luke 16 if you want to start flipping there. Sheol is the, is, the, is the underworld. Sheol is the world of the departed. So when your body goes in the grave, your soul goes to Sheol. And if you're a believer, your soul spirit goes to Sheol. Remember, unbelievers have dead human spirits. But believers, but everybody has a soul. And so Luke 16 tells us about this, about a post-mortem encounter with Father Abraham. And we learn a lot in this chapter, in this episode. And we learn that Abraham is pretty active. You know the chapter I'm talking about? Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus? There couldn't have been more opposite in life. Or death, right? So there was a rich man who had a manager, this manager. Nope, long story. Verse 19. There was a rich man, different rich man. He habitually dressed in purple. Great word. If you want to know the Greek word for purple, I can tell you that. Um, and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. What a great life. Except he's not saved. So he has a carnal, great carnal life. And then he has agony. And then there's a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. Laid at his gate, meaning he can't move himself. Covered with sores. Not a great life. All right? He's got a terrible life. He's physically afflicted with health issues, to say the least. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. That's, uh, this was the earliest form of Obamacare, was the dog licking. Uh, I'm sorry, that's, that's bad. All right. But that's, yeah, you thought your HMO was bad. That's what he had to work with. And the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. This is the expression. Jesus calls it paradise. He tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Here it's called Abraham's bosom. It is a compartment within Sheol where the righteous are blessed, where the righteous are comforted. And when Abraham got there, we believe that every believer was there. From, remember, uh, uh, Cain killed Abel. Where did Abel go? He went to Abraham's bosom. He only wasn't called that yet. (laughs) He went to paradise. He went to the comfort side of Sheol. The rich man also died and was buried. (laughs) All right. That's pretty blunt. So, so much for the party, so much for the good life. You had this great life going on and now they buried you. How fun is that? And so, notice now, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And this is really the clearest picture we have of hell. Or Hades, the Greek word Hades, that's translated hell sometimes. But it's a compartment within Sheol. Sheol has these two compartments. There's the paradise side and there's the hell side. Some people would call all of it hell or all of it Sheol. The Hebrew word Sheol speaks of this. But he's over there on the Hades side of things. Being in torment. Lifted up his eyes. Remember it was the soul that got there. The body was buried. The body's in the dirt, six feet under. But the soul went to Hades. And the soul outside of the body, I believe it starts taking body shapes. Such as here. And so the eyes of his soul... And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now there's a gulf in between those two compartments and Abraham is going to describe that. So he cried out and said, Father Abraham. So he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Here is a post-mortem ministry of Abraham. Now, we can debate what it means to be in his bosom. Was Abraham literally hugging him? Or was the bosom simply a title for the territory, for the compartment? I think the compartment was called paradise. That compartment, by the way, is now relocated to heaven. Uh, I don't think the compartment was called bosom. I think the bosom was his bosom. I think Abraham was hugging him. So he cried out and said, Father Abraham, Have mercy on me. How did he know that was Abraham? Did he ever see Abraham in his life? No. I mean, we assume this was current day, Jesus' Jesus day, 2,000 years after Abraham. We don't know the time frame for it. But how did he know this was Abraham? Was Abraham wearing a name tag? Hi, my name's Abraham. (laughs) You know, your soul, the the eyes of your soul can see things, and it's curious. Um, We can see each other. We can interact with each other. soul touches soul particularly in, within marriage, within other intimate relationships, within the boundaries of a local church as the shepherd of your soul. We have ministry. This is soul-to-soul vision without the body distracting things, without the physical body, without the earth, without this cosmos, without all of the layers of things that would, would blind us to the realities Abraham looked right at him and knew this is a sick, twisted soul. Just at a glance. And so uh, Lazarus in his bosom. Lazarus, by the way, never says a word this whole chapter. He's just getting hugged and being comforted. So he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. Now again, how does he have a tongue? Wasn't that buried? How does he have? Uh, how does Lazarus have a finger? You know, the these souls, uh, I believe, they shape themselves into a bodily type representation of what they were accustomed to back when they had a body. And here's an unbeliever bossing people around like he's in charge of something. You know, there's a there's an attitude like. Who made Lazarus his errand runner? You know, who made her? You know, you're going to dip your finger in what? You're going to, excuse me, <laughs> that's my finger, go away. You didn't give uh, breadcrumbs to Lazarus when he was in front on your porch. Why do you expect him to come do something for you now? Abraham said, Child, remember. Abraham is communicating doctrine, he is relating divine viewpoint. He's having ministry on this occasion. It's a post-mortem encounter. It's after he's physically dead. Abraham is communicating this. Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. Just at a glance. He has the whole panorama of this rich man's life. Everything, living it up, living the good life, and how it damaged his soul every step of the way. And Lazarus, he got some bad things in his life. But he was a believer and he walked by faith. He kept his eyes fixed on the Lord, as far as we know. Because now the consequences are the the unbeliever went to hell and the believer went to paradise. Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And notice they're both aware of what's happening to them. Can you be comforted if you don't know what's happening? No, it's conscious. Eternal conscious comfort or eternal conscious torment. You are aware of the situation that you have been placed in when you die. Being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed. Now, this is the geography before the cross When unbelievers went to torments and believers went to paradise, and they could look across the chasm and see each other. It's not like that anymore. Paradise got relocated to heaven when Jesus led captivity captive. When Paul went to paradise, we're told he was in the third heaven. So paradise has been relocated. We get that. But between us and you, there's this uh, great chasm, and it's fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. You ever think about that? It may be that there are believers with enough doctrine and love, sacrificial love, that they would willingly cross into torments on behalf of someone over there. Paul said he would. Paul said he would be counted accursed if he could save the Jewish people. And it's interesting to me. And then, of course, nobody from there can cross over to where we are. It's not like purgatory. The the Catholics made up this thing about purgatory, where you go and you burn for a few million years, and then eventually you get to make it to heaven. Wrong. No one, if you're there, you're not coming over here. Not happening. So he says, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Notice it's the unbeliever that has all the regrets. The, the Lazarus isn't trying to send anybody back. Lazarus isn't complaining. He's quiet through the whole chapter. He's being comforted. The one with regrets, I mean, I'm sure he had human regrets. We all do, but it's not, he's not weighing on him like it's weighing on this rich guy. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, what has been recorded in the canon of Scripture is sufficient. God has provided all things necessary for life and godliness. What's in the Scripture is sufficient, and if it's not recorded in the Scripture, we don't need it. But he said, no, Father Abraham, uh, they're not big on Bible study. <laughs> they don't like the Bible, they're not going to pay attention to Moses. Moses. Honestly, church kind of bores them. When they go to church, the pastor just kind of rambles on and on, and I really get bored 10 minutes into it. Okay? They say, we've got a problem here with Moses. What you really need to do is send Lazarus back. If Lazarus returns from the dead, that's going to get their attention. Hmm. As Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Do you know how powerful that is? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. Guess what? People ignore him all the time. They ignore the Bible all the time. Even with a risen Savior. They, they just act like, well, it didn't happen. And uh, it didn't happen because it can't happen because we don't believe in miracles, because we don't believe in God. <laughs> well, see, here's your issue. So here's this ministry. And I think the, uh, the ministry that Abraham had, his testimony related to faith, his testimony related to the scriptures. And he's, he is, when he says they have Moses and the prophets, those are all things that happened after Abraham died. So it's curious to me how he knows about them and how he speaks about them and how he addresses this rich man this way. And yet uh, nothing in Genesis uh, gives us a hint of any of this. All we have in Genesis is that he died and was gathered to his... uh, No, he died and was buried with Sarah in the cave. That Ishmael and Isaac helped uh, work together to bury him and then that was that. We don't see Abraham again for the rest of Genesis other than they talk about him in the past tense. What about us? We have another application to be made. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Church age believers can emulate the patriarch's example in living as aliens and strangers. You and I should be living as aliens and strangers. We shouldn't be all wrapped up and we should be, uh, shouldn't be consumed with the things of this life so much so that it, it's detrimental to our spiritual walk. And I think sometimes, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm a news junkie. I like politics. I watch the news. Um, I can tell you anything you want to know about the Kurds, or I can tell you anything you want to know about President Trump, and I, I watch these things pretty closely. But if I go overboard in that territory, to the detriment of my spiritual walk, I'm wrong. And if I confuse American patriotism with spirituality, I'm really wrong. So in 1 Peter 2, we realize this is an admonishment for all of us. I urge you as aliens and strangers, we're as alien as it gets. (laughs) Because this world is not our home. We used to belong here. We were by nature children of, of wrath, even as the rest. We don't belong here anymore. You know, it's like he somehow transformed a fish into a bird but he left him in the, fish, in the fish tank. How long would the fish last? That doesn't seem safe. <laughs> okay, That if you turn a fish into a bird, you probably should take him out of the fish tank and put him in a birdcage. Wouldn't he be happier in a birdcage if you turned a fish into a bird? Well, think about it. When we got saved, we got transformed given a new nature in Christ, a heavenly nature, a heavenly citizenship, baptized in the union with Jesus Christ, seated positionally at God's right hand. But He left us in the fish tank. He left us in this fallen world, in this fallen body. Okay? Now His grace sustains us. So we can survive, even, unlike a bird in a fish tank. My analogy kind of breaks down. You'll probably tell me after class, it was the dumbest thing you've ever come up with yet, but... And I'll quit using it. But the fact is, we have a new nature, but He leaves us in this old place, in our old bodies, so that we can uh, depend on His grace every step of the way. We have this treasure in earthen and va- vessels so that the surpassing value of the grace may be of God and not of ourselves. And so we get to function as aliens and strangers. We get to fa- function as, as birds in a fish tank. Okay. And it says, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. See, this is the thing. These fleshly lusts are destructive to the soul. That's what happened to that rich man. His soul was a wreck. He gets to to torments and Abraham, all he can say is, look, you, you had what you had in that life and now you are where you are. The damage to the soul. And this is the sad thing is, whatever damage you did before you got saved, that's enough. (laughs) In fact, it's too much. It's more than enough. Okay? So whatever damage you did to your soul before you got saved, and then before you got under doctrinal teaching, because that's another impact. A lot of people get saved, and then it's another decade before they get under doctrinal teaching. Okay? In which case, you're probably doing more soul damage in the meantime. But once you're saved and once you're abiding in the Word of God, living in the Word of God, being fed and nourished by the the whole counsel of God's Word, then your soul is, uh, is preserved. So abstain from these fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. And keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. In other words, be a faithful Lazarus. So that when the rich man looks at you, at the great white throne. You're going to be standing right there. You are the evidence, the testimony. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. They're going to give God the glory because of your testimony. Assuming you keep your good testimony. And this is what the patriarchs were commanded to do. This is what they did. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they lived as aliens and strangers. They dwelt in tents. And the Gentiles around them, some of them were uh, in hostility, but some of them were in wonder and amazement. Uh, I think the the, uh, Abimelech of the Philistines, he was amazed at Abraham and at Isaac both and the wells that they dug, and the blessings that they provided. I think they had other associates that, that uh, identified with them for blessing. And then they had some hostile neighbors that uh, paid the price for being hostile to God's servants. And that's, that's our case as well. There will be those that will uh, observe our testimony and be blessed by association, and there are those that will not. And we'll encounter that Hostility. Back to Hebrews then. Let's look at 11.15. Hebrews references the patriarch's faith and comments that unlike the Exodus generation, the patriarchs had the opportunity to return. They lived in a country that wasn't theirs yet. They lived in a country that was promised to become theirs someday. And then they saw prophetically that it was going to be centuries later, millennia later this will be your land. Remember, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. So they're living in a land, a promise. But then it's revealed to them that it's thousands of years from now. And we're going to die without seeing the kingdom. What do they do? They stayed there. They stayed there and lived as aliens. They had an opportunity to go back. They had an opportunity to, to abandon their faith at that point to say, Thousands of years from now, who needs that? And they could have gone back to Ur of the Chaldees. Now this is uh, this is this is quite significant, I think. So they confess that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They make clear they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that from which they went out. In other words, if they had been carnally minded, thinking back to their days as idol worshipers, they would have had opportunity to return. They would have had opportunity to return. Abraham could have returned to Haran. Isaac could have returned to Haran. In fact, there were snares there that Abraham was so concerned about, he did not allow Isaac to go get his own wife. He insisted that Abraham that Isaac had to stay in the land of promise. Are you familiar with this? Genesis twenty-four, verses six through eight. We don't really have arranged marriages anymore, not in our culture. There are countries around the world that do. I've seen it work. Every time I threaten my daughters, they uh, they laugh at me. So in Genesis 24, Abraham was old, advanced in age. Remember, he didn't have this baby till he was 100. And uh, now Isaac is uh, pushing 40. So now Abraham is 140. And you know, you're 40, you should be married by now. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned. Now this is the servant who could have been the heir until, uh, remember when Abraham was talking about Eliezer of Damascus as my heir, his servant born in my house? Please place your hand under my thigh. This is intimate. <laughs> all right. Nowadays we have a handshake. That's much more safe. Yeah. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Living here in this land of promise, yes, it's the land of promise, but it's full of idol worshipers. It's full of Canaanite idol worshipers. As opposed to the Ur idol worshipers. All right. Go to my country, to my relatives, take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? You know, there, there are a lot of brides that kind of want to know what the guy looks like first. So what if she isn't going to come? Do I take him there so she can get a look at him? Abraham said, no, beware. Do not take my son back. Oh, beware. It's, this, is, this is powerful. No. Beware. Do not take my son back there. Whatever you do. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. You will take a wife for my son from there. In other words, your mission will be successful because God is in it. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this, my oath. Only do not take my son back there. It was such a serious issue from Abraham that he was, he was willing for this servant to break the oath. Breaking the oath would be better than taking Isaac back to that land. So this opportunity to return, that's, that's extraordinary. They had it. I think Abraham was terrified of going back. What would happen had he gone back? And that was his faith at that time. Of course, in chapter 28, Jacob doesn't have such a choice. He has to—he's got to run for his life because his brother wants to kill him. Now, sometimes brothers fight, but wanting to kill your brother—that's pretty serious. And so Jacob has to has to flee. And the excuse that his mom comes up with is, well, um, he needs to go find a wife. It's time for him to get married because uh, the wives that Esau chose were terrible. And so they invent this thing whereby Jacob can go fetch a wife. Anyway, there's uh, trouble that happens. He lives there for 20 years. He lives there with Laban. There is conflict all over the place. And he does get a wife. He gets blessed with Leah, but then he gets cursed with Rachel and Zilpah and Bilhah. He comes back as a polygamist with four wives. He had the land of Abraham's birth. This was trouble. And Abraham knew it. Anyway, the opportunity to return. You can read chapter 28, read chapter 31. You'll see the issues there. I'm just running out of time. We have communion today. We always run short of communion Sunday. Now the city with foundations designed and built by God, I believe it's transformative. I believe that something happens that turns their land into a heavenly land. Because they were looking for a better country that is a heavenly one. And what does it take to turn a land into a heavenly land? What does it take to permanently change a land? That's a great question. I should save that for Wednesday night. You know, we're not talking about bulldozing a bunch of dirt or moving a mountain or a land is a land, right? I mean, Texas has been pretty much Texas shaped for a long, long time. I mean, you can reroute a river and you can dam rivers. And so there's lakes that didn't used to be there that are there now, but essentially. This is Texas, right? It's the same land that under the Confederacy, under the Republic, under uh Mexico, under Spain, under France, under whoever, under the Comanches. This is still the is isn't this still the same real estate by and large? But why is it now American? What permanently transforms a, man, a land, well, quicker than anything would be a people group that comes in and identifies, <laughs> changes the nature of that land. So, how about when a whole bunch of heavenly people show up? Can the land of promise become a heavenly land if Jesus and a heavenly population arrives with him? Yeah. Resurrected saints will turn Canaan into a heavenly land quicker than anything. Because as thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so a resurrected Abraham, a resurrected Isaac, a resurrected Jacob, David, all the Old Testament saints, when every resurrected believing Jew is back in the land, that's going to be a heavenly land, because it's going to be resurrected saints with no more sin, no more death. And so here they are looking for a heavenly land, looking for a heavenly city, There's a reason why the earthly Jerusalem is called Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem is called Zion. And what happens when Zion comes to Zion? (laughs) When the heavenly Jerusalem descends and it gets here? That's what we're looking forward to. All right. And so um, this is what they're looking for, a better land. They're looking for a heavenly land, we're told. That's verse 16. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The arrival of that city turns their country into a heavenly one. The city with foundations designed and built by God transforms their earthly land into a better heavenly land. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this. It's a bit of a side trip, Next week we'll be back to Abraham again and the sacrifice of Isaac and all the other Old Testament stories of faith. But I pray that we hold on to this doctrine and we process it and we recognize that, uh, Father, this is what's expected of us. We need to live as aliens and strangers. We need to be looking for a better land. We need to be not so absorbed with this life and this land and these possessions and these cars and these houses and all these things. They're blessings as you give them. But Father, we can't take them with us. Thank You for divine viewpoint and perspective. And we thank You and praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.